I remember the California seals paid streakers. <laughs> it de- it depends on who we're talking about here. If it's Kevin Biaxa, no, I don't want that. If it's okay, you, no, oh, oh, I don't want that. Okay, here we go. Once again, we're going to get a weather check from Elliot Friedman in a second. But first, 32 Thoughts, the podcast brought to you by the all-new 2024 GMC Sierra HD, Merrick Friedman and New Dom, Old Dom. We really don't have a handle for Dom yet, but we'll sort it out in upcoming episodes. Okay, meteorologist Friedman, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. It may be the fall. It may be the fall in Canada. As we record this a little bit after 9 o'clock Eastern on Sunday, November the 5th, I have a question for you, and it is this. Where is it hottest in Canada? Now, here are your three choices. Edmonton, Ottawa, or Toronto. Which of these three hockey markets are lit on fire like none other right now? Well, if you look at the weather app, it's two degrees Celsius in Edmonton, but there is a fog advisory. <laughs> it's zero in Ottawa. What are you going for? It? And it's plus five in Toronto. <laughs> I knew you were going to do this, so I did my research. So technically, it's hottest in Toronto, plus five. Okay. From a hockey point of view, just talking about hockey, I think the answer is Edmonton. Now, what should be said here, Jeffrey Merrick, what's yes, your middle name? James, JJM. Jeffrey J. Merrick. Yes. The Oilers always go through one week a season where it looks like the Titanic sinking. One week a year, it always happens. A couple of years ago, it's when they made the coaching change. There was one last year, too, where... It appeared as if every day brought a new level of anger and pain and angst to the Oiler Nation. And this year, it started early. I don't know if it's ever been as early in the last few seasons as it started this time around. But, you know, you uh, there's my November 1st stat, which mm-hmm, is teams yeah. that are four points out after the games on November 1st make the playoffs around 10 to 15% of the time. Well, the Oilers are one of those teams this year. Them, the Flames, the Sharks, and the Penguins. Those are the four teams that have to beat those odds. And I thought after the outdoor game, things would be okay here. They are far from okay with one of their sources of kryptonite, Uh the Vancouver Canucks, looming on Monday night. They are so hot right now, Vancouver is. And I believe Don was telling us that it hit 18 degrees in Vancouver as well. So the temperature is warm uh, and the team is legitimately hot right now. But back to the Oilers. Uh, two, seven, and one. Uh, sources say, Elliot, that is ungood. And the scrutiny is being placed very much on the two netminders and most specifically, Jack Campbell. You mentioned on Saturday. Uh, It sounds, looks, feels, smells, however you want to describe it, like the Oilers are about to give Stuart Skinner a run here. How do you read the goaltending situation? I thought that I thought Bob Stauffer nailed it on the uh, the Edmonton Nashville game in the intermission. What did Bob say? I refuse to believe Bob Stauffer got something correct. He compared them to the San Jose tandem as well, and said that even San Jose is outperforming them, and that's the main problem here in Edmonton. I think it's. More than that, look, they're not getting saves. There's no question about it. But 
the Oilers are leaking. This is a double whammy combination. Jeff, I may not have played hockey to a high level, but I know that if you're giving up great chances and you're not getting saves, it's bad. Sources say that is bad. So yes, they're not getting saves, but I don't think this is only on the goaltenders. The Oilers right now, they can't defend. The teams are just going right through them and they're getting to everywhere they want to go. Before we talk about the goalies, though, I want to talk about the head coach because, uh, you know, I started getting calls when that game started getting away from the Oilers against Nashville on Saturday. People started asking me, do you think Woodcroft could be fired? Like, Do you think we could something could happen after the game on Saturday or we could all wake up Sunday morning and there was a, a new head coach? And... There's there's two things I look at in these situations. Number one, what is the coach's history? And number two, who's the replacement? Who makes sense? It's very easy to sit there and say we're firing the coach, but it's a lot harder to say who makes sense to replace him. I always think about that. I wish I could credit the general manager who told me this early in my career I'm getting old now, so my memory's going. But he would always say to me, I don't want to hear fire the coach. I want to hear who and what makes you better. Now, the number one thing here, I think, is that, yes, I do believe that the Oilers are starting to ask some serious questions internally. Like, what is wrong? Um, What can we do to fix it? And has it been thrown around that maybe... They might have to look for another coach. Yes, I believe it has. I think you would be doing the ostrich, burying your head in the sand if you didn't think the Oilers were at least thinking about this. But let's remember one thing. Jay Woodcroft, before this season, was the Oilers' head coach for 120 games. They'd won 76 of those, and they'd won three rounds in the playoffs. Is he perfect? No. But he's gotten results on that team. And to me, you need to have a, when you've got that kind of record, you need to have a good reason to say you really have to have exhausted all your options when you are saying we have to change the coach. Now, are you going to have to go in there and say you might have to do things a little differently? Yes. You might have to change the way you approach some things? Yes. But how many teams fire a coach with that kind of winning percentage and find someone better? So that's the number one thing I look at here. You know, so you you sit there and you make your list, Jeff, of, and this also goes for, you know, Ottawa too. You make your list of who makes sense. You know, Claude Julian is a person. Like if you're really craving structure, that is definitely the kind of guy you're looking at. You know, Patrick Waugh, and we'll talk about him with Ottawa in a second. I've always wondered if the day would come that he would get another shot in the NHL. You know, a lot of people talk Joel Quenville. What about Joel Quenville? Well, on Sunday, there was a report of another uh, lawsuit potentially in the 2010 uh, Chicago Kyle Beach case. And there's a media conference on Monday. I I think at this point in time, we're recording this on Sunday night. 
I want to wait to hear from this media conference and see what comes out of it. But I think it's safe to say, Jeff, while this is unfolding, it seems unlikely, very unlikely, the NHL would approve Joel Quenville's return while this case continued to proceed. So that's the one thing I sit here and I wonder. Like, I think there are teams that would look at some AHL coaches or assistant coaches and other teams, but how often do teams let them go during the season? As a matter of fact, I was talking with an executive on the weekend who said that as far as he knows, and there are some situations that are different, there's a lot of AHL teams. Like if you're looking for an AHL coach or you have a good NHL team, you kind of tell your guys that once the puck drops at the start of the season, we expect you to stay through the season. And he told me of a situation, he asked not to use the name because it would out who told me this story, but he told me of a situation where they had an AHL coach who got offered an NHL job with another team, and they said no. They said, at the beginning of the year, you made a deal with us. Now, there are exceptions. Uh, Kirk Muller was the coach of the American Hockey League team for Nashville in Milwaukee, and Jim Rutherford wanted to hire him in Carolina, and he was allowed to do it. So there are exceptions, but generally teams prefer a commitment all year long once the puck drops. So I think with the coach in Edmonton, look, if Jay Woodcroft had a 350 winning percentage or a 420 winning percentage, I think we'd all understand that. But the guys had one full season, and his winning percentage is at 65%, and they've gone to five playoff rounds in the last two years. Unless he's openly refusing to do things, or you really think he's lost his touch, you'd have to explain to me why that's a good reason. So a couple of things here. Um, One, there's a number of reasons why I think it has to be incredibly frustrating to be an NHL coach. And I think the main reason or one of the main reasons at least is the one position on your team that you have the least amount of input or expertise about is the one that generally dictates whether you will stay employed or will be fired. Yep. And that's the goaltending. What's the old saying? Show me a good goalie. I'll show you a good coach. Alain Vigneault, if your goaler is better than my goaler, you win. If my yep. goaler is better than your goaler, I win. Ned Harkness. You should change the name of the game from hockey to goalie because <laughs> that's what it really comes down to. But I look at Woodcroft and I look at the save percentages of Jack Campbell and Stuart Skinner and say to myself, man, I, I feel bad for him because how much of you know the fate of the Edmonton Oilers and him rests on something that he doesn't really have much input into. I don't disagree with you, but I would feel better about that as purely the reason if they were playing better defensively. Like if, I get if, that. If you said to me that Edmonton was locking teams down and still losing, then one thing I'll say to you is I've had a couple of teams now who say to me, they look at the Oilers and they, and they say, when do the Oilers think we can't win with this goaltending? Like, do the Oilers get to a point where they say, this is not going to work for us, and we have to find a way, whatever the cost is, to extricate ourselves from it? Like, one GM, was, it was really interesting to me. He says, look, you've got McDavid, you've got Dreisaitl. They're in the prime of their careers. You think after the last couple of seasons that those guys are going to stay forever because you have a chance to win. 
And now all of a sudden, this year starts the way it is, and everybody's got questions. Uh-oh. And what he said to me was, if I was in their shoes, Ken Holland and Jeff Jackson and Paul Coffey and whoever's there, he said, the question that I would be asking myself is, is there a price that is too high to pay to extricate myself from this problem if I decide that we can't win with this goaltending? And he said the answer would be probably not. Like it's one of the few situations because it's McDavid and Dreisaitl in the mm. prime of their careers and they're getting closer to the ends of your contract. That's one of those situations where you say, okay, guys, I know you're not throwing me preservers. You're throwing me anvils. I'm ready to go to the bottom of the ocean to do what it takes to get myself a better goalie. And, okay. you know, he said he would think about it. I'm glad you got us there because that was going to be my next follow-up. There used to be very much a thing in the NHL pre-salary cap and even in the first you know few years of the salary cap once people started to really wrap their heads around it. And now that the salary cap is flat uh, for this season, at least, um, things are complicated and it's hard to make deals. But there used to be an old saying, before you fire a coach, you owe that coach a trade. You owe that coach a chance to shake up the roster. And then if that doesn't work, okay, your hands are clean. Go ahead and fire the coach. I know it's hard with the cap being where the cap is and how difficult it is to make trades, make moves in general, especially when you're in a salary cap situation like the Oilers are in right now. But does Ken Holland owe Jay Woodcroft a trade to try to get this team out out of this mess that they're in right now. If you're asking me, like, here's my question for you, Jeff. Do you see somebody there right now who you think should be the coach of this team over Woodcroft? And I am taking into account that they went to a defensive system earlier this year that mm -hmm. seems to have screwed them up for a little bit. I don't fire Jay Woodcroft right now. I don't. I, I think you go shake up the roster first. And then if that doesn't work then all bets are off for everything. Then everything's on the table. Because again, how many times have we had this, this same conversation? Is the issue here coaching or composition? And if you really believe, and many people do, and you, you don't have to be a, a wise old hockey person to look at save percentages and say, hmm, it may not be the whole problem, but it's a big one, then you say to yourself, mm, this probably isn't coaching. This is probably composition. That that's what I think right now. Like that's I, I'm by the way, I should have said when the guy said to me, I'm going ready to go to the bottom of the ocean to make the deal. He said, at the bottom of the ocean with the Dracula squids. And I actually Googled what a Dracula squid is. It's disgusting. He said, I will go to the ocean with the bottom the bottom of the ocean with the Dracula squids to make this deal. Oh, I just Google it. Look at those things. Oh my goodness. <laughs> like I, I, like honestly, Jeff, I'm not afraid of a lot of things, but the bottom, but the bottom of the ocean creeps me out. I have to say it, it really, it really does. You people who go down there, you are better than I am. I will confess. The but vampires, the, but, the vampire squid of hell. <laughs> that thing is disgusting. Oof. Anyway, anyway, 
<laughs> nice hockey podcast you got there. Uh, hey, welcome to uh, Mutual of Omaha's <laughs> Wild Kingdom. Uh, but but I I agree with you. I think you you know like again you I, I was looking back at some of the goals this week. I know I'm sounding like a broken record, and sometimes I I really do think I repeat myself too much on this podcast. But I'm I'm going to hammer this point. And that is that when I see the goals, I see two problems. They're not getting saves, and any good team that's playing against them can get to wherever they want. And here's the other thing, Jeff. I know we're going to talk about Toronto. I'm looking at Calgary right now, okay? Calgary could have three defensemen on the market. Three good defensemen on the market. Noah Hannafin, Chris Tanev, and Nikita Zadorov. It would be hilarious to see Calgary bailing out Toronto and Edmonton on one I level. I can't see it. But I, 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 I honestly, Fridge, I can't see it. Okay. Like, honestly, can you can you see it? Hey, Calgary throwing lifelines. I'm I'm just saying this. I think they've begun to make their phone calls. Just to see what the market is. I don't necessarily think anything's happening soon, but I think they're making their calls. If I'm Edmonton, I'm looking to make a deal that addresses my two problems. We're not getting enough saves, and everybody's going, who's playing against us, wherever they want to go. How do I do that? And even if it's a bit lopsided in the sense you have to give up like, I, I don't know if you're giving up players, but, well, I mean, you might have to clear some salary out, but you're not necessarily giving up top players or top prospects. But if you have to give up draft capital to do it, mm-hmm. if I'm the Edmonton Oilers, I'm saying McDavid, Dreisaitl, Prime, the marching orders are do what needs to get done. Do you know what uh, Cliff Fletcher said to Sherry Basson when draft they were, no, when they're, that's a good one though. When they were talking about the Matt Sundin deal, the origins, like the, the beginning conversations of the Matt Sundin deal, Sherry Basson brought up the name Wendell Clark and Cliff Fletcher said, tell you what, I'll do the deal with Wendell Clark on one condition. And Sherry said, what's that? And Cliff apparently said, you put me in the deal as well, because if I trade <laughs> Wendell Clark, I will be run out of town. I'll do the deal if you if you include me in the in the package going back to Quebec. I bring that up for one reason. Craig Conroy doing a deal to help bail out Edmonton as one of his first major moves as general manager of the Calgary Flames. Does Craig Conroy say, sure, Kenny, I'll make that deal? Put me in the deal as well. Look, it would take... I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I don't think you're wrong at all. For me to do that, if I was in Craig Conroy's shoes, number a one, premium. it would take... A ta- premium. Not just a premium, Jeff. Oh. Like, a premium is nice. <laughs> this would be a fleecing? 
I'm talking about a deal that would get a banner hung up in the new building whenever. But but that's my point. It can't just be a yeah. premium. It's got to be like if you're going to do that. And I agree with you. It's incredibly unlikely. This is this is a fun podcast argument. But you have to make a deal that every one of your fans is going to look at and say, "All right. I can deal with that." And then if Edmonton straightens themselves out and wins because you made that deal, they've still got to be able to say, all right, I can live with that. I agree with you. It's unlikely, Hmm. but they've got the type of players that Edmonton could use. Okay. Off the Edmonton page. So number two is Ottawa. Number two number two is Ottawa. Last in the Atlantic. Uh, The fire DJ Smiths were loud on Saturday I thought Brady Kachuk did a really good job jumping in front of all of it to distract away from the DJ Smith issue. Um, you know, I'm glad you said that because there's all this debate and fallout about Brady Kachuk. Brady Kachuk did this for one reason. And this is the only thing that anyone has to realize. Brady Kachuk was doing that to take the heat off his coach. He looked at he looked at everybody, he said, "I'm the captain. I am stepping in front of the camera." And I am directing all of the commentary towards me. This is not about, he's not ripping the fans, even though what he says. Uh, like, he gave a But he's not. He gave a sharp yeah. shock. <laughs> he gave a, he, but he wanted to be heard. This is not about Brady Kachuk ripping the fans. It's not. It's, I can understand why everybody thinks it, but take your eyes away from the obvious. This is not about Brady Kachuk ripping the fans. This is about Brady Kachuk protecting the head coach. He likes DJ Smith. He said it. He likes playing for him. He's become a better player under him. All these guys have signed in Ottawa because they like Ottawa and they like playing for DJ Smith. This is Brady Kachuk stepping in there when they're all booing DJ and saying, hey, look at me. Come for me. That's all this is. Just understand what he's doing. Here's the one thing that everybody has to remember. Brady Kachuk comes from a hockey family. Things like that come natural to people like Brady Kachuk because his dad is Keith Kachuk. And he grew up in this environment. And at that moment, Brady Kachuk knew exactly what had to be done. That's a guy that grew up in hockey. 100%. Right there. That is the Kachuk family. Now... Does it mitigate the fact that the heat is on, the temperature's up in Ottawa? The GM search is underway. Um, the fans are howling for a sacrifice. They're uh, they're getting their pitchforks sharpened up right now. What's the temp in Ottawa? It's it's very hot. And the other thing too is, you know, and someone made a really good point to me about this on Sunday. He said the other thing that you have to take into account here is that. It's an owner who just paid a record price for a team. And how much do you think he needs playoff revenue to make that make sense? It's a key part of your cash flow is playoff revenue. So this guy said to me, don't discount that. It's important. Now, again, I believe what Steve Steo said. Steve Steo's preference is let's calm this down. Enough going on. Let's calm this down. 
here's the thing is, it's the old line. The road to hell is paved with the best of intentions, right? Steve Steos is 100% thinking that this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. But eventually you could get boxed into a place where you're just saying, you know what? If we don't start winning games, it may not be what I want to do. It may be what I have to do. Now, you know, here's here's the thing here. You got local fans cheering for Claude Julian, who's there. And Claude Julian's a structure guy. One of the other ownership groups, I don't know how Steve Steos and Mike Andlauer feel about Patrick Waugh, but one of the other ownership groups was prepared to make Patrick Waugh the head coach. That was a decision that they were very interested in making had they gotten control of the team. You know, the the other name I, I kind of wonder about if they do anything is John Gruden. I just don't know if they're going to be able to get him during the season. He's coaching the Marlies uh, in, in Toronto, and he won an OHL championship with Andlauer and Steos in 2018. He was the he was the head coach of that team. Hamilton Bulldogs. What did I say? You didn't, you didn't give a team name. Thank you, Jeff, for mentioning <laughs> that I forgot the team name. Again, I take Steos at his word. I absolutely take Steos at his word in this particular case. I think that if he has to make a change, it's the absolute last thing he wants to do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the other thing too is if you go back and you watch that media conference from last Wednesday, for me, like the 97th time on YouTube, Steve Steos is talking about what he sees as a player. This is a guy who played almost a 1,000 games in the NHL. He knows when a team is playing for its coach. And he believes that if as long as a team is playing for the coach, you give him the longest possible chance to turn it around. And so I think he is pro-DJ. He sees a team playing hard for his coach a team responding to his coach, and Kachuk, what he said the other night, will only reinforce that. So I think he waits as long as he can before deciding to make a change. I think the only way he does it is if he gets to a point where he just believes, I have no choice but to do it. Do you think the fans chanting has any bearing on this? Well, it did in Toronto, remember? with Ron Wilson, like that yeah. was that that was the big one that we all point to. And Brian Brook has said that he said, "Look, it was it would be cruel and unusual for me to continue uh, to keep throwing Ron Wilson out there." But for this group, for Steve Steos, do the fans' chance matter? It shouldn't. You know, Bob Knight died last week. He had you know he had a line, and I hope everybody understands where I'm coming from on this. Where if you listen too much to what the fans say, pretty soon you're going to be up there sitting next to them. That was his line. And you have to respect your fans. You have to appreciate your fans. You have to show the fans that their fandom is wanted. And we're going to talk about that, especially when we get to San Jose in a few minutes here. 
but you have to have the courage of your convictions. Like Ken Holland in Edmonton is a perfect example. There were times last year where people wanted him to do things and he wrote it out and it turned out to be the right decision. You have to know when to turn off your phone, delete your social media, and say, bah, 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 I am not listening to anyone out there. And especially when you're new, you can't, like Steve Steos is in his first job in the NHL at this level. You have to be able to show that you can stick to the courage of you. Like they got thrown a curveball last week. They got that penalty and they said, you know what? We can't keep going the way we're going. I think everybody understands that. But you can't keep changing your plans. At some point in time, you have to say, this is the courage of our convictions and we're sticking with it. But they got to start winning games. That to me is the big question here. How long can he wait? I don't think it's the fans. I think it's the W's and the L's. We'll see where that one heads. Uh, it's another crucial week for the Ottawa Senators on the horizon. Another crucial week for the Toronto Maple Leafs as well. Um, eyes focused squarely and criticism sharp and swift and focused squarely on the new players. Bertuzzi, Klingberg, Domi, Reeves. Hasn't really worked out anywhere here, Elliot. And it seems as if, if, if Austin Matthews isn't scoring hat-tricks... Maple Leafs have a hard time, A, scoring goals, and B, winning. Uh, case in point, Saturday against the Buffalo Sabres. Where is Toronto on your meteorological scale? Well, it's high because there's a lot of things that are concerning. You know, first of all, the lack of response against Boston, and then the way, you know, you, you heard Biz on Saturday night, and you know, Biz play that, played that role. He played the role of, I'm going to stand up for my teammates. He was an emotional guy, and he says, when you play like that after you lose the way you lost in Boston, that's a bad sign to him. Like, there's a few things here. Number one, it's a bad sign that all the new players are really having trouble fitting in. And is it the way that Toronto plays? Like, I was thinking about our interview with Jake Allen when he talked about how unique Toronto is offensively, is it simply a matter that there's these four new guys in Toronto that they can't mix into the way Toronto plays? Like, like, don't you think it's weird that it's all the new guys who are struggling the most? That's a long pause, Merrick. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of, is, is, it, is it weird? Because I, I don't know, like these, a lot of these signings were kind of panned at the at, at the time that they were made oh i don't know I, I disagree with that people like the bertuzzi they love the one year on bertuzzi they like and bertuzzi they love based the on what they saw in the playoffs but i mean everyone saw john klingberg with anaheim everybody saw john klingberg with minnesota i think people still had visions of you know brian in dallas um i thought Tommy had a really good year last year in chicago and dallas mm-hmm. but i i I, people, I, don't, I don't know. You know what? People praise the one-year deals. That's what people liked. Mm -hmm. Now, so like I, like I'm shocked at how hard these guys are having to translate to Toronto. 
like is it i i just like don't know like what is so what is so unique about the way the Maple Leafs play that veteran players like Tyler Bertuzzi and Max Domi and John Klingberg have such a hard time fitting in? I don't, I don't have a great answer for you. I'm just like, I'm just trying to remember what Alan said, like they're unique in the offensive zone, the way they create motion. I went back and I listened to him talk about it when he, we did that interview with them last year. I, I mean, look, I'm sitting here, I'm searching for reasons as much as anyone else. Look, I see some of the obvious problems. I think they've been looking for defensemen. You know, I, was ta- I, I ran into somebody today. Where was I? I was, I was at the gym. I know this story is almost hard to believe already, me talking about going to the gym. What's his and name, he, Jim? <laughs> and and a, guy says, a guy says to me, while well, I'm bench pressing 360 <laughs> pounds, a guy says to me, a guy says to me, uh, are the Maple Leafs going to sort this out? And I said, I think they're looking for D. And this guy's like 70 years old. He's like, they've been looking for D my whole life. And I just started <laughs> so, laughing. So they're looking for defense since Alan Stanley was taking draws for Punch Imlac. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I like, look, I think they are looking for defensemen. It's just a matter of, does, like, and I think they've been looking for defensemen again <laughs> after they traded for guys last year. I think they've been looking for defensemen all summer. They just don't haven't found the mix. Like you know, the one I can see is Zadorov, and, and I, I'll bet you this: if they could find a way to get Zadorov and Tanev, I bet yeah. you they would do it. I bet I you bet they'd they do, do both of them I, if Calgary I, was willing to do that. I Brad, I really Brad. believe it. Brad True Living knows them well, obviously. Mm-hmm. And there's the obvious Now, I, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but if you showed me a path where that could occur, I I could see it. But look, I, I, I think they're looking for D. Um, but I am amazed at how out of sorts they look. And and then there was the team meeting on Friday morning. Now, you know, I, I want to make one thing pretty clear. Like, you know, you know what's interesting about them is if you look back at them over the last few years, you know, Nick Felino fought Corey Perry after Tavares was hurt in the playoffs. And I remember that's the one that's the one fight I remember all of us watching together in the green room and saying, Oh, we don't want to see this, because it was clear it was an accident. You rem- Jason Spezza got the only suspension of his career when he went bananas against Winnipeg a couple years ago for what happened. So there have been cases where they've done this, but generally it is not part of, I'm sure I, mean, I can imagine Spezza must've been going bonkers over the last day. As people said, the Maple Leafs never fight back. He's like, I got suspended for this. <laughs> um, but it, it like, Nick was right on the broadcast last Thursday. It's just not in their DNA. And they had a team meeting and the players spoke, Keith spoke, Brad Tree Living, the GM, I understand, spoke. And what they talked about was it's instinctive for championship teams. And I, I heard one of the things that was said in there. Nobody will confirm it, but I heard one of the things that was said was, other teams know that they can push us around. And Jeff, that is one thing I agree with. In the NHL, those teams, they do not win. You don't have to be seeking it out. It's not the 1970s where you're sending 
Bob Kelly, Dave Schultz, Don <laughs> Seleski, and Ross Lonsberry over the boards. But, you know, there was a video we showed on Saturday night of Robert Bortuzzo running into Vasilevsky, and whole before team. he's in the corner, the whole all team has their gloves down. They're all over him. All of them. That was a great highlight you guys showed last night. That was really good. And and you you know what like, but it's I, but hang on the the thing the thing that that really drives that point home is, do you see the people do you see the Tampa players that are going after Bortuzzo? It's like Kucherov, right? This isn't just like oh yeah like some of the uh, you know bigger you know tougher defensemen and Pat Maroon. No, like this is like that was from a couple of years ago, and like that was like skilled players like Hart Trophy candidates that are out there going at Robert Bortuzzo. Absolutely. And I think that's normal for them. It's not unusual for their skilled players if they're on the ice to do it. Like, that's one thing. Like, there was a, at the beginning of the year, there was a game where Bertuzzi poked at the one goalie. I think it was Gustafson. And Matthews and Marner were right in the middle of it. Like, they went there and they defended their teammate when the scrum started. But it's just... Like, like the whole team just seems off. The thing is, though, and I, I keep coming back to this one. Like, that's not how any of these of the, of the top guys with the Maple Leafs play. Like, they're not hardwired that way. Matthews isn't wired that way. Marner's not wired. But that he did way. in that Nylander's one case. Not wired, yes. wired that way. Tavares isn't wired that way. You know, cows don't make ham. Like, that's not their game. Like, they are not. That's not their default setting. For those guys on Tampa, it is. For those guys on Vegas, it is. Colorado. Colorado it is. Keep going. Like they're they're wired that way. Like to me, I just wonder if this is all connected. So then here we go coming back talking about composition and if the Maple Leafs keep trending this way, and who knows? We'll see. It's the start of the season. Is there a shakeup coming? The thing about the Maple Leafs is they have the opportunity this offseason to redo their team. And it's early. Like we're it's November the 6th when this podcast drops. So that's still a long way away. But if this doesn't change, I wonder if that Toronto team is going to look very different next year. And there will be people who listen to this podcast who say I have said this before, and it's true. I said it two years ago. But now this is a time where the contracts all start to align, right? You've got one more year of Tavares. You've got one more year of Marner, and you've and, and Nylander's at his end. And, and all credit to Nylander, even though I didn't like him and Klingberg on the empty net goal, I think he's played really well so far this year. You know, Jeff, the other thing I wonder about with the Maple Leafs is I wonder if they do a roster shock. Like a scratching, like Jeff Carter Saturday for the Pittsburgh Penguins? Even more than that. A trade? I wonder if, no, I wonder if they bring up some of the kids from the American Hockey League. Nick Robertson looking your direction. Bobby McMahon, too. Those are the two guys. Nick Robertson is scoring, and someone sent me video of, so Toronto played in Laval on Saturday night. And something happened, and Bobby McMahon just went after people. There was a a bit of a hit from behind. It's tough to tell because the video I sent was really really grainy. 
Yeah, Logan Logan Shaw got hit. And he gets right in there. And so, and I'm sure, I'm sure all those AHL guys for the Marlies knew what happened. There's this thing called the internet right now. You you know what happened on your NHL team. And I'm sure Bobby McMahon is like, hey, I better show these guys that I'm standing up for people because that's what he did. So those are the names I I kind of wonder about a bit. Uh, that's another shakeup Toronto could do. Okay, um, let's take our first pause there. We still have a lot to get to and a lot to chew on. Uh, we will get to the San Jose Sharks here in a couple of moments. They are having an historically bad start to the season. We'll get into all of that. We should park some time and talk about Sidney Crosby, game number 1,200 against the aforementioned San Jose Sharks, where Pittsburgh put up a 10 spot. San Jose gave up a 10 spot two games in a row. All that plus the Montana. 10 spots a place where you get your nails done. <laughs> Thanks to Steph, I know about that. All that plus the Montana Stot Line and uh, more tour around the NHL in moments. We'll be back in a second. Listen to the 32 Thoughts podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Surrendering 20 goals in two games. Elliot, I'm new to hockey. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm just sort of dipping my beak in the hockey fountain here. Not sure if I like it or not yet. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I'm new to Considering this. Considering it's only happened four <laughs> times, and this was the first time in 60 years, it's it's a yeah. bad thing. Go back to the that, 65 that's Bruins. Yeah. That, that, you know, and okay. And, and you know what I got to say about San Jose? The number one person I think of right here is the owner. Okay. Hasso Platner. Yes, and because this is all in his hands. To me, there is one question. When I look at the Sharks this year, I say, what does the owner think of this? That is the first thing that jumps into my head. And the reason is, number one, Platner, a few few weeks ago, we talked about the McConnells with Columbus. They leave you alone. They let you do your job. And if you were to rank owners 1 to 32 – would you want to work for them? The McConnells would be very high. Platner, mm. same deal. He leaves you alone. You do your job, okay? And look, like they had Doug Wilson was there forever. They had yep. ups. They had downs. They had mostly ups. But generally, you know, you never you, – you had other teams say, geez, I wish I had the owner in San Jose the way he does his job, the way he lets his guys do their job. So that to me is question number one, because I think this. He was willing to do a retool. I don't know that he was willing to do this. Now, I think what he's being told is, look, this hurts. This is painful. But if we get through this year, we get a high pick. We can start to turn the corner. I think he's been told and he's being prepared right now that as much as this hurts, if we do it right, we can come out of this. So you've got to be able to convince him. But number two, the the tough thing is you see the crowds. And, you know, the I'll, I'll say this. If you're the San Jose Sharks organization right now, you have to be making it 
so that you are giving the fans that are going to those games the greatest experience of their lifetime. Like you, you got everybody here will watch his hockey probably saw that picture the other night before the Vancouver game or during the Vancouver game with the fan holding up the sign saying, I'm, I'm at my first Sharks game ever. And that poor kid became a meme all across the internet. But what you, when you're in this situation, it's like a trick-or-treater comes to your door on Halloween and you're like, would you like the whole bucket? I'll give you the whole bucket. You have to sell your fans. <laughs> like When you're losing like this 10 games into the season, how are you convincing your fans to come back into the building for the rest of the year? And that's the thing that freaks out owners. I, he's looking at this and saying, you know, how are we going to keep customers? So you, you have to make sure you're giving them, aside from winning games, the greatest experience they ever could have to come into an arena. But, you know, I, I know the reporters the other day asked Dave Quinn, like, do you worry about your, your job? Like, like, this isn't Dave Quinn's fault. Now, I bet you he wants them playing a lot harder. And I, I guarantee to you that nobody, not the players, not the coaches, not anybody is enjoying losing back-to-back games by a 20-3 to count. But this is not on the coach. Like, this is not a, a coaching change is not going to make anything better. Like, Jeff, I, I really don't know what to say aside from I hope the owner is on board with this because if he isn't then you've got a real problem there Mm -hmm. um I don't know maybe show BU highlights in the intermission start pumping up Macklin Celebrini bring him gotta make sure you win that lottery though junior sharks stand out let's bring them home I don't (laughs) I don't. I know that's it. There's that little thing about actually winning the lottery as well, which uh, which complicates. I mean, obviously, if you could sell that, if you could say this is our guy, and obviously, as you mentioned, he's a junior shark, so they all know it. And and on some level, you can't help but look at that and say, you you can't help but look at that and say maybe that was part of the plan that was sold to the owner. Like this is a kid our fans know, and we've got to give our best shot at getting him here but going from here to there and then and sometimes banking on that fickle mistress that is the nhl draft lottery you Mm. you have to make sure you get it right here's one of the reasons why and there's a number of reasons why uh i don't believe that the plan was the scorched earth take it right down to the nuts and bolts type of rebuild i'm still curious what Tomas Hurdle was told about what the plan was in San Jose before he signed that whopper of an extension. Nobody thought it was going to be like this. Nobody did. Nobody thought it was going to be like this. Because I remember when people were interviewing for that job in San Jose, they were saying that we're, we're not, we're going to retool. Like I was okay. asking guys, is, is this a teardown? And they were like, no. I read a book uh, about the NBA called Built to Lose, which was about all those teams that tanked. And people who support tanking, they're like, you have to do this, you have to do this. But the one thing you forget is the toll it takes on the players, the coaches, the staff, 
the owner who's looking at empty buildings and there's like, you sell hope, right? Like if we do this right, we get this, 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 and this, all these prospects and we're going to be better. Well, what happens if you get it wrong? Or what happens if you scorch your earth so badly that when you start to get better, fans are like, eh, I'm kind of tuned out. Like you're really going to have to get better before I'm coming back into that building. You know, there's been some teams that have tried it and it's lasted a lot longer than they thought. And in hockey, hockey also is the toughest place to go scorched earth because, you know, even a Celebrini, as great as he is, like the best team in the NHL is a four-line, three-pair team. The Golden Knights de Vegas. Like it's, it's a hard road from here to there. So when I look at it, I say, is the owner okay? And number two, the Sharks have to stop at nothing in groveling to their fans this year. What do we have to do to get you into the building and make you happy? You know, I remember Berkey telling me once, you're always trying to sell winning. Well, every year there's one team that wins and there's 16 teams that have losing records. So what are you selling when you're one of those teams? You know, once upon a time, and you can't do this anymore for a number of different reasons, one of those things you did during your down period was fill your team with tough players. It may not be a winning environment, but there's going to be fireworks. That's what we're selling. But you can't do that anymore. And a lot of those players don't exist anymore. So uh, let me swing to one other thing here. Um, San Jose loses, and again, like they surrender a 10 spot again. It's the Pittsburgh Penguins, and it's Sidney Crosby. And that was game number 1,200 for Sidney Crosby. And there are, I tweeted this out on Saturday night, 18 players that have averaged a point per game while they're playing in games 1,200. Okay? Crosby is fourth amongst them going into Saturday night. Gretzky's number one, averaging 2.12 points per game. Marcel Dion at 1.37. Phil Esposito at 1.27. Sidney Crosby, 1.26. Steve Iserman, 1.25. All at the 1,200 game mark. That, to me, is an incredible stat that talks about how consistently great... Crosby's been his entire career. I think it was it you or someone else on the panel uh, doing the highlights referred to him as uh, Sidney Crosby of hockey's Mount Rushmore. I think that's true. And like, look at the look at the names he's in with: Gretzky, Dion, Esposito, Iserman, and he's fourth at the twelve hundred game mark. If you think about the 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 five guys, when when people rank hockey players all time, there's generally five guys they put there: Gretzky, Lemieux. Or how Richard? Where's Crosby? Crosby's right in there. Where? I think that both Crosby and Ovechkin. Like if you had to put him into the top five, where yeah. is he going? Well, my top five would be different than those, though. <laughs> no, oh, su- of no course. surprise to you. Who's your top five? Uh, I would have uh, Gretzky, Lemieux. Lidstrom, 
Um, Lidstrom over Orr. Yes, Lidstrom over. You Orr. are you are on crack. <laughs> okay, on. you want me to go over the you? Yes. No. No, no, no. Bobby Orr dominated at a time when the NHL was at its weakest. I'm not saying he wasn't a great defenseman. I'll just take Lidstrom over him. I, I can't believe I have a Lidstrom sweatshirt upstairs in my closet that I proudly wear. I cannot believe you're forcing me to take this position. But you're <laughs> that's insane. I, I'm sorry. That is just insane. 99, 66, Lidstrom, Crosby, Ovechkin. I think that Jean Beliveau needs to be a lot higher in a lot of these too. Um, but those would be my five right now. And if you want to throw a goaltender to that mix, I'll throw Dominic Hashik. Yeah, I, I don't I don't mind Hashik at all, but But you hate Lidstrom, eh? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, I no hate idea. him. Okay. I really hate him and all Swedish mm. people. Um <laughs> But no Crosby's Crosby absolutely has to be see Crosby I'm, I'm beginning to wonder to be I'm beginning to wonder if Crosby's fourth. So you go Gretzky Lemieux or, or Crosby, and then who's your fifth? I don't know yet. I have to go over all this. Rocket or Ovechkin? What about Gordy Howe? I think Gordy's getting punted here, bud. Well, the reason I'm thinking four is because I said Mount Rushmore the other day, and the last I checked, Mount Rushmore only had four heads on it, not five. You can take five. <laughs> Make up your own Mount Rushmore. That's hockey Mount Rushmore, my not Mount the real Rushmore Mount Rushmore. is larger than the real Mount <laughs> No, that's chicken. That's chicken. If you're going to say okay. Mount Rushmore, it's four. I think Crosby's fourth. Over Ovechkin? Yeah. Oh, I, I, you have to. He's all the winning he's done. Okay. You, you know what, Jeff? The other thing you can sell if you're Sharks management or try to sell is look at Anaheim here. Mm-hmm. A year ago, it was really tough for the Ducks. And... Now, here they are on Sunday night giving the Vegas Golden Knights their first regulation loss. Now, what do the Ducks have? They have Mason McTavish. They have Adam Henrique. They have Leo Carlson. They have Trevor Zegras. Troy Terry, Frank Vetrano. They've got Troy Terry. They've got Frank (laughs) Vetrano leading the NHL in goals this week. You know, you, you know, you have to find players. You absolutely have to find players. But you can say to your fans, that's our goal. Now, and, think about that. and, and on think about some that. level, you're, I know what you're going to say, and you're right. I guarantee there's going to be people on this podcast going to say exactly what you're about to tell me. But at this point in time, Jeff, you have to sell hope. And the uh, and that's a great drive down the coast of California. Like, uh, you know, it's, it's scenic. You can sell that too. Here's the thing too, though. Like, you, you walk a very delicate line here. Like, selling hope is one thing and rushing players to the NHL is another. Like, Anaheim has this stockpile of yeah. prospects. You know, that pipeline from, you know, kids getting into the system and going to San Diego and getting to the Anaheim Ducks team, like that is a well-oiled machine right now. Mm-hmm. Like that looks fantastic. I mean, every time we, every time you watch an Anaheim Ducks game, Elliot, there's like another first or second round defenseman who's starring on this team and there's even more coming. Oh, yeah. And ditto for forwards as well. Like they're in a really, you know, unique position here where they can continue to populate their team 
with elite level prospects. And that's been accrued for a number of years. They've done a great job drafting and developing. But San Jose hasn't been that team. Like they don't they don't have that the, the that wealth of prospect pool like Anaheim does. Anaheim's in a really, really special position. And listen, they've kept, you know, Lucas Dostal down in, in San Diego for what seems to be the appropriate amount of time. And he's the NHL rookie of the month in October. And he's pushing John Gibson and, 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 and it's like at every single position, they've got players they can plug in like to the point about selling hope. I mean, I know that they're on this, this win streak right now, and, and that's awesome for the Anaheim ducks, but they're still in the, we're selling hope and we're selling the future here. San Jose's still not there yet. They don't have those guys. They don't have those guys like Anaheim does. Jeff, I'm just trying to find, you know me, I'm an optimistic guy. I'm trying to find ways that they can make this work. Like I, I, I just, I don't think it's good for business when one of your teams is going through this. So I'm try, I always try to think of if I was in charge, how would I get out of it? I remember the California seals paid streakers. It, de- it depends on who we're talking about here. If it's yeah. Kevin Biaxa, no. I don't want that. If it's okay, you, no. Oh, oh, I don't want that. All right. Just trying to make ends meet, Elliot. Just trying to make ends meet. And, and then, speaking of Anaheim, Jeff, they ruined the Vegas segment of tonight's pod. Oh, I know, right? Well, how about Vegas coming off that glorious whipping of the Colorado Avalanche on Saturday night? Seven bagel, statement game, big dog, woof, woof, woof. And then here come the Ducks. <laughs> it's clear that Vegas's problem is they're overconfident. <laughs> like, like Vegas needs another team to have great games with and yet another rivalry. Like they have this like heated one with San Jose. We've talked about Vegas, Minnesota games. We know that Vegas and Colorado make fantastic games. Like how many more teams can have just great games against the Vegas Golden Knights? Like how many rivals can one team have? Well, that's when you know that you're great when everybody's playing their true. best against Completely you, right? True. That's when you know you're great. Look, you know, Vegas... Uh, you know, first of all, uh, there was I, I give credit to one Avalanche fan. I, I don't remember their name. They tweeted at me several times. They disagreed with my tweet about how Vegas was a, a absolutely dominant. And he tweeted at me, and he fought with a bunch of other fans too. It was pretty funny. I give them credit because this is a true hockey fan who loves the Avalanche, and I admire your passion. And I admire your willingness to stick in there in a, in a tough battle. But I'm going to say this. When your team loses 7 to nothing, don't send me the deserve to win a meter at 63%. When you lose 7 to nothing, you deserve to lose. Like, it's, it's that simple. And I guarantee to you that Jared Bednar is going to make sure, like, that form 7 to nothing is around the avalanche room for the next month. Like he's gonna take their nameplates off their stalls and he's gonna put seven to nothing above all their names. But you know, Vegas, they got bit by the ducks. You watch the reaction when the when Carrick scores the empty netter to make it four to two for Anaheim on Sunday night. Like the coaches are going crazy, the bench is going crazy, it's like awesome. the fan the fans are up. Like if you're Anaheim, you you need this. You talk about giving your fans reason to come into the building. Anaheim 
You know what? Was it you who made the joke that Verbeek is going to start trading people because they're winning too many games? But <laughs> yeah. you're giving your fans reason to come back into your building. And you, you sometimes you can do it with wins and sometimes you can't win. But the Ducks went through this last year. Now they're giving fans reason to come back with the building the way with winning games. But I just think even though Vegas slipped up on Sunday night, like I, I think if you were ranking the teams one to thirty-two now, they'd be they'd be one Vegas, and I think there's there's a bit of a drop to number two, even with this this loss. I mean, you're gonna have to lose eventually. You know, Vegas has sent a message to the league that one year later the Stanley Cup still goes through Nevada. Okay, let's get to the uh, the thought line now that we've uh, given the bouquet of flowers to the Vegas Golden Knights. It is time for the Montana's Thought Line, Montana's Barbecue and Bar, Canada's home for barbecue and the greatest tagline in any podcast. Go try the ribs. 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca. 32 thoughts at sportsnet.ca is the email, the phone number 1-833-311-3232. A quick one to kick it off. Ace, if that is indeed your real name, Ace from Saskatchewan. How much does the NHL spend on pucks? So this was a really interesting question. Uh, I, I know this person, uh, Ace, and he sent it to me. And uh, it's like, like like nepotism and who you know works on the thought line too, apparently, is what I said to him. <laughs> and bribes too. And bribes of wings. Do you think bribe you me can with wings. bribe us to get on this podcast? You're exactly right. So I asked someone and I said, you know, I, I thought this was an interesting question. And this is what they they proposed to me, like 16 to 24 pucks a night. So I took 20. How many games are there in a year between exhibition, regular season and playoffs? I came up with 1,450, give or take. Like people can tell me I might be a little bit off, but this is pretty close. And apparently a puck with the tracking costs about $47. So I came up with just under 1.4 million. I came up with <laughs> 1.36 million. Yeah, I'm surprised that I'm netting all, all around the rink of 47 bucks a puck. The, the fan, actually, I have to tell you that was one of the things when they were talking about tracking in the puck. That was one of the things they talked about. They said we have to get it down inexpensive enough where we're not chasing people for pucks because keeping a puck that's shot into the crowd is part of the game. For people, they and you know what the with with the fox puck, those were ex, those were expensive pucks, and they used to go and they would have to offer like fans like home team jerseys or tickets in order to get the pucks back. It's a great story how they used to have to hound people like and and bribe them to give the pucks back. And they said this time around they didn't want to do that again. People yeah. have to be able to keep pucks that are shot into the crowd. Yep. So there. Yep. So there's your number. It's about one. Rough estimate, $1.4 million. Okay. Um, Mike in Peterborough. Hi, Jeff and Elliot and Dom. Dom getting some love. Love the show. First time emailing or calling. I listened to the most recent episode where you discussed the idea of mandatory neck and cut protection for NHL players. I played hockey my entire life, and when I was a kid, they introduced a mandatory CSA-approved neck protection. The thing I've never understood is where are the insurance providers in all of this? Hmm. Seems like if I decided I was going to disable my vehicle's airbags or get rid of other safety features, my insurance company would have something to say about it, not to mention the government. Anyways, that's my question for you today. Do the insurers not have something to say here? Surely they must be pushing hard to lessen the chance of them having to pay out huge sums of money 
when someone's career is cut short by a preventable by a preventable injury. My deepest condolences to Adam Johnson and all who knew him. Mike in Peterborough. I think that's a great question. I don't have look. Look, insurance companies like when you deal with them in real life, you know how much power they have. We used to live in a house that there was a lot of flooding. It was just one of those areas where, um, you know, the, the the sewer systems were older. They couldn't handle the, the the grounds didn't drain very well, and eventually, one of the things that happened that eventually forced the city into redoing the uh, sewer system around us was that the insurance companies told the houses in our neighborhood that if if we kept on having to have like basements fixed and stuff like that, they would stop insuring us. So we had to go to the city and say, you can't put us in this position. Now, eventually we moved because it was too much of a pain in the ass, but um, they d- eventually did do it. So yes, they have enormous power. Like for example, there are contracts in the NHL that aren't insured for certain injuries because of the injuries that players have suffered in the past. So I, I do think that's a thing. I just don't know in the immediate aftermath of this if that has become a thing yet. Like it looks like the players are simply going to start doing this themselves. Slowly one by one, two by two, uh, as we're seeing each and every night around the NHL. Um, from Peterborough, Mike, thank you. This from Eric. Uh, hey, Jeff, Elliot, and Dom. One of the games I was watching over the weekend had a situation where the team on the power play, oh, you'll like this, Elliot, where the team on the power play had potentially gone offside and the refs let the game play on. The play stayed inside the offensive zone for approximately another minute, and while the play continued, the broadcast crew kept referencing that all of this could be for naught if they score, and it's deemed the play was offside. This got me to thinking. If the play Mm -hmm. was offside and the team scored, does that mean that the team on the power play is going to get a redo of all that power play time? Ultimately, that would mean the team on the penalty kill needs to defend almost two power plays in one. That's got to be not great. Anyway, great job, old Dom, Elliot, and Jeff. I've asked about this before. I've asked if they... It was, if the it, clock resets. Correct, which means that you could end up having to kill two minutes and 30 seconds of a power play or three minutes of a power play. It resets. I've asked if there was ever a consideration of a carve out. And you know what I was told? No. Too bad. <laughs> Two minutes and 30, three minutes, whatever. Your job is to kill it off. Yes. And, and I actually agree with that. I remember at the beginning when they started talking about the offside challenge, they said, look, if a team doesn't clear it out. They were saying, should there be an amount of time where let's just say if the puck gets in and it's offside, but you don't get it out for 30 seconds at some point, they said, isn't it on you for not being able to get the puck out? And I think right at the top of the league, like Batman daily, it was, it was no, like once it's tainted, it's tainted and that's it. And they've always taken that line. So I'm not surprised at all. You were told that. And that's exactly what would happen. The actual quote was, yeah, too bad. <laughs> Will in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Jeff Elliott and fearless leader Dom. This is getting out of hand. There are six active players left who don't wear visors. Beginning in 213-14 under rule 9.7, quote, all players 
who have fewer than 25 games of NHL experience must wear a visor properly affixed to their helmets. Does this rule mean that a player that played 25 games before 13-14, let's say tinted visor wearing beauty David Perron, could take his visor off and play visorless? Yes. Or is he stuck wearing it for the rest of his career? No. The answer is yes. He could take it off. Yeah, he could take it off if he wanted to. So if he outplayed, let's say, let's say it came down to like David Perron and Ryan O'Reilly. And Perron was still wearing the visor and O'Reilly thought, oh, ha, I'm the last guy to go visorless. I'm the Craig McTavish of visors. And he retired. And then David Perron played one more game and decided to go visorless. Would you count him as a Craig McTavish of visors? Or is he just getting off on a technicality? I could see David Perron doing that because he's <laughs> he's enough of that kind of guy who would say, I could get away with this. I'm going to do it. I love it. Okay, two that I have a quick answers for here. Spencer and Regina, I uh, got a question. He's uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Spencer and Regina is asking about Alex Ovechkin uh, switching to Bauer sticks. Um, he was a CCM guy. Uh, he's been using Bauer this year, Spencer, but he hasn't formally switched to Bauer. He's not a Bauer stick guy yet. He's just trying different sticks out. Uh, Warrior sent him samples as well so he does not have a stick deal yet with any manufacturer don't be surprised if you see him shooting with warrior sticks in the near future and this one you'll like this one elliot i think holly submits this good evening my husband and i enjoy your podcast and tonight we thought of a question that might be right up your alley in the toronto los angeles kings game today the end of the first period had a five plus minute run of play to close out the period What's the record for the longest uninterrupted run of play in an NHL game? Keep up the great work. Let's go, Ducks. You know this? Now, uh, I had to check. God bless the Felon and Sportsnet stats. Play-by-play stats only go back to 2009-2010. That's the only time that it's been tracked. There's been you know legendary games where, oh, we had a run of 20 minutes where didn't have a didn't have a whistle. But, I mean... There's no one's documented all of this. So as documented by the NHL, the longest whistle-free run of play was March 11th, 2014, Washington Capitals, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Elliot, it went 13 minutes and 45 seconds. What? 13 minutes and 45 seconds. March 11th, 2014, Caps and Penguins, 1345 of beautiful whistle-free play. That could Thank be you. three commercial breaks. I, yeah, I was going to say, what's everybody doing in the control room or in the truck at that point? Well, the worst thing about situations <laughs> like that is then it becomes whistle-break, whistle-break, yes. whistle-break. Yeah. You, know, you sit there and you say, this is wonderful, but, but then when they have to make up for it, yeah. it's decidedly less wonderful at a certain point in the saloon they turn the lights on and the bills arrive and that's what happens after the 13 minute whistle free shift in the nhl uh still plenty to get to here on the uh, 32 thoughts podcast that was the montana's thought line montana's barbecue and bar canada's home for barbecue back in a moment Ah, 
Elliott, yet another start to another week. Now, other than the 32 Thoughts podcast, there's eh, not much else really to look forward to. Jeff, you are forgetting about Montana's Daily Deals. Their chicken wings are double-dusted in-house, cooked to a golden crispy finish, and they're half price on Mondays. Uh, Half price? Half price every Monday and sauced however you like them. Well then, head on down to Montana's Barbecue and Bar for half price wings every Monday. The only other thing exciting about Mondays. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. Okay, Elliot, we'll finish the uh, podcast today by talking about the issue that you led Saturday Headlines with, and that is Jack Hughes. And you mentioned uh, that it is not the worst case scenario for Jack Hughes. What do you hear? What do you know? And by the way, uh, they win Sunday against the Chicago Blackhawks, a game in which, and this is a weird one, Dawson Mercer gets his first point of the season. He'd struggled those first nine or ten games, but... Uh, no Jack Hughes in this one. No Nico Heischer in this one. Uh, New Jersey still wins. Uh, double up the Chicago Blackhawks. I have to tell you, I got great texts on Saturday night from people saying that your tweet on the Jack Hughes injury was the biggest word salad we've ever heard. <laughs> or ever read. And I said, come on, give me a break. I'm just saying it wasn't as bad as they thought it could be. And he was still going to miss time. And they were tweeting me or texting me back with word salad. Like I had one guy who texted me word salad like 24 times. I think the thing is the the sense I really get is it's one of those injuries. And I I think it's the shoulder. I don't know that for sure, but I, I, I think it is. Like if you've ever injured your shoulder before, and I have, I've had a broken collarbone. Everybody responds differently, right? So that's the issue. It just, it's how things progress. But the one thing that I did hear was that it wasn't as bad as they thought. I think they were really worried when he initially got hurt that Mm. this is a thing that was going to be months. And I don't believe they feel that's the case anymore. So that's Mm. why they're fortunate. They avoided the worst case scenario, thankfully, because it's just not good for anybody. Uh, but he is going to miss a little bit of time, and we'll just see how his body responds. It's it's a shame. It it's just not good for anybody. You could have said that quicker, but no word salad. Word salad, yes. A uh, couple of quick notes here to wrap up the pod. Uh, Patrick Kane, you talked about Saturday narrowing down the teams, inching closer to a decision. Yes, I think I I don't necessarily think the final decision is going to be this week, but I do think that uh, he's going to start taking some meetings or or zoom calls that's uh and i and i think his goal is to narrow it down to a small handful over the next few days carolina looking to move a defender yeah they got they got too many pesci's coming back i think d'angelo's name is out there i heard it might not be him i heard it could potentially be somebody else but i've heard d'angelo's name uh, is out there. Do you have a thought on Johnny Gaudreau bench the final 16 minutes and seven seconds in the two to one loss, at the hands of the Washington Capitals who don't look now, but have won four of the last five games for each. Yeah. I, you know, I have to tell you, uh, Jeff, um, this was what Columbus wanted this year. You know, that's why initially Babcock was their coach. And when they had to move on from him, 
they said to Pascal Vincent, this is what we want. They felt they had a country club. And, um, you know, they, they've benched Kent Johnson a couple of times. They sent him down to the American Hockey League. Um, they've benched other players uh, during games. Uh, and now Goudreau the other night. This is what the, do- the Ducks, this is what the Blue Jackets want. Like, Vincent is not doing this in a vacuum. He is doing this with the express... What's the word I'm looking for? Written consent? <laughs> I like that. With the expressed <laughs> written consent of the Blue Jackets management, this this is what they want. If you don't think yeah. somebody's playing, you sit them out. They don't get in the lineup. By the way, about Columbus, they have Eric Robinson in the American Hockey League. Yep. I've, I've heard that teams like Robinson, and there's interest in him. The problem is the number. He's at 1-7. It's hard hmm. for teams to fit him in. But I think if there's a way to do it, that's a guy I could see getting moved at, at some point. Because teams like the player, they just can't fit the number. Anyway, like that, that won't be the last one in Columbus this year. That's what they want. And, and you know, like if you're going to do that as a coach, you have to have the backing of your organization, and Vincent does. We'll see how the Blue Jackets respond as they face off against the Florida Panthers on Monday, one of four on the board to kick off the week. Elliot, um, take your pick. There's some beauties on Monday. The Tampa Bay Lightning facing off against the very, how shall we say, emotionally bruised Toronto Maple Leafs. Is that correct? Um, the Boston Bruins, who have now been handed a regulation loss courtesy of the Detroit Red Wings, they'll face off against the Dallas Stars. Uh, that should be an excellent game. But the Vancouver Canucks are hot, hot, hot. Everything is sunshine in BC right now with a record of 8-2-1. and one. You mentioned it earlier in the podcast. I'm so looking forward to Vancouver and Edmonton. On Monday night, there are some beauty games to kick off the week for each. I'm with you, and I will be watching all of them on multiple screens until my eyes glaze over and I can no longer see. (laughs) Watch hockey until your eyes ring no sail and you just drift (laughs) off to sleep. Uh, On that, we'll wrap up. Uh, Podcasts returning later on this week as well. Thanks again for joining us here on this Monday. Enjoy your week of NHL action that's on the horizon. Have a great week.